0: The same things in society that inhibit people from spiritual awakening, those exist within all religions. Mm -hmm. And I had left Christianity and I was like, oh, Islam will be perfect. Nothing is perfect. But I do feel that the word of Allah is perfect, but Muslims are not. And I think that's where a lot of the tension resides. But I'm extremely hopeful because it also means that we can change and we can grow.
1: I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today, I have this wonderful, dynamic woman uh, here today, Blair Imani. Blair is a writer, mental health advocate, and a historian living at the intersections of Black, queer, and Muslim identity. In addition to being a public speaker, Blair is the author of Modern History: Stories of Women and Non-Binary People Rewriting History. And I have my copy right here. We're going to talk about this today. This book was published in 2018 um, and it's just amazing. Her new book is called Making Our Which Way Home. I have a copy of. Yay! Can I
0: grab that copy? Yes! Yeah. All right, let me grab it. that.
1: I'm so excited. So, the new book is called Making Our Way Home The Great Migration and the Black American Dream, and it comes out in 2020. And Blair's going to show us. Yes, just right on time, Blair. So, I first have to show you that I have it wrapped
0: in a black jersey hijab, which I personally feel is the best way to travel with your first editions, so of they don't course. get nicked up. All right, get ready. Oh, wow. Woo-hoo. Wow. I have to show you the back. Because I have a portrait here of the- Betty Shabazz, Ma- Malcolm X, yes. and Muhammad Ali.
1: Wow, that's incredible. And is it the same illustrator from the first book?
0: No, so I, um, the first illustrator, her name is Monique Lay, and she's absolutely brilliant. She's first generation Vietnamese immigrant. And she actually helped inform this second book. But the second book, I wanted to go with a Black author or um, black author that's me black illustrator so her name is Rochelle Baker and she's absolutely brilliant I have a portrait of the two of us on the end pages and she also really helped inform the book because she's from Detroit that's her Mm. and that's myself oh I love it and so Detroit was one of the cities affected by the Great Migration, and so I wanted to make sure I wasn't just capitalizing from a West Coast perspective, and I brought her perspective in. But Monique even helped me talk about the Vietnam War, being somebody whose family experienced that. So ancestors have really flowed through the creation of both books.
1: Amazing. Okay. I cannot wait to talk about both books. Blair, you're also the official ambassador for Muslims for Progressive Values, which is one of the oldest progressive Muslim organizations to support the LGBTQ plus community. And Blair has been featured in Essence, in Out Magazine, Them, Broadly, and many more places. So welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast, Blair.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so tickled to be on the podcast.
1: I'm so excited to have you here. I'm going to kick off with our first question. Who are the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey?
0: So I really think about this, this next book that I have because as I was writing it, I was like haunted in a really beautiful way. Maybe haunted is not the best word, it doesn't have the best connotation, by my grandparents. So every day, I wear my grandmother's ring, and it's just a plain gold ring, but it kind of looks like a cloud, which I think is really beautiful. On the inside, it says RL and EL, so that's Eloise and Roy Lupu, those are my grandparents. And as I was writing the book, I had neglected to talk about Eloise Lupu, my grandmother, and I had turned my manuscript in, and I started having like these waking dreams where I would wake up just like completely drenched in sweat um the first one was like really nice I had to chat with my grandma and she was like baby why didn't you include me in your book Mm. and I was like oh you know and I had like made up a whole reason or whatever the next stream she was like why am I not included you know and I was like okay I need the manuscript back because by being inspired to write about her I talked about the black women who made up the Rosie the Riveter you know um propaganda this idea that like Black women were part of the workforce since forever and white women had been hailed as heroes for it. But because black women were underpaid, my grandmother also had to work on the weekends. She had to work as a hairdresser and as a manufacturer. And then they lost their jobs after the war because they weren't valued. So I think that whether we have these connections through our dreams, through our prayer, like we can become recentered and it really just brought more education. Then I also have, of course, the ancestors. Fethi Shabazz, Muhammad Ali, and El Haj Malik El Shabazz, aka Malcolm X. What's really important to me is that I have him in the book. I don't know if you can see the text, but I have him written as El Haj Malik El Shabazz mm. because I believe it's important to call people as they were, um, as they wanted to be called. You know, we're not calling Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay because that's right. the name he chose for himself. They have helped me. I mean, learning about Malcolm X really brought me to Islam because. It was part of the way that he was able to reckon with white supremacy in the United States. And also the idea of renaming. My legal name, uh, government name, is Blair Elizabeth Brown. And I've recently given myself a new middle name, Blair Amadeus Imani.
2: Yeah, can you repeat it? Yes,
0: I think it's really Blair Amadeus Imani. Yeah, I think it's really smashing personally. I do too. (laughs) You know, Amadeus, thank you. Amadeus means love God. And I'm here today in D.C. for the Interfaith Conference. And so it was just, like, really perfect because so much of the work I do is because I love God, and I want to make sure that people are able to worship in ways that are comfortable to them. And then Imani means my faith. And I chose that when I converted to Islam. And it's a Swahili word. It also, you know, Imam is an Arabic word. And then Imani is one of the days of Kwanzaa. So it was, like, a really beautiful bookend way for me to honor my truth, but also my ancestors. And the last element, so the cover, really speaks to me because I don't know if you can see here, but that's me and my partner. Mm. We're making a little cameo. So yeah, really good I love in there. it. Um, yeah. And I chose this from a family photo. So we didn't know who the two people on the end were, so we were okay to like replace them. And then on the end here, you have my uncle Lester here. And he was gay, but he never got to live his life as a gay man. Mm. So we gave him a husband here to walk with. Um... And then these two people in the middle, those are my um, grandaunt and granduncle, Clarence and Carmen. And I was in, yeah, it's a picture from 1945 after the World War II, they're in Harlem and they're clearly making their way home. And so I think it's really a nice way. But the stories in here start with um, Patrice Cullors, who's the founder of Black Lives Matter. Uh, She talks about her grandmother, Jenny Ensley. And I talked about my grandmother on my father's side, Verna Brown, in the conclusion. So I think as Black women, we are so grounded by our ancestors, just looking at like the way religion is and was practiced on the continent and how ancestors, like, well, if the harvest is bad, the ancestors are upset. If the harvest is good, the ancestors are pleased. That doesn't go away just because we transcend or we uh, traverse to a new land Mm. that carries with us. It's in our DNA.
1: So I've been really interested in that. And so, yeah, good ancestors. That's amazing. There's so many things that you said that gave me chills. When you spoke about your grandmother coming to you in dreams, I was just really, that made me smile because when I was basically negotiating my publishing deal for my book, Me and White Supremacy my maternal grandmother came into my dreams and was, she was basically in this dream. She was my, she was my literary agent and she was sort of, I love it. <laughs> she was like she assessing, was like thinking, yeah, do. she was assessing all these deals and she was like, don't worry, like I've got you, you're, you're going to be good. I'm going to take care of you. And that sort of energy really, you know, knowing that, you know, there, there is a lineage that I come from and there is this power and that I don't, you know, as Oprah says, like, you don't just stand alone. You stand as this lineage of 10,000 ancestors and more. I just find that very, very powerful. And so thank you for sharing about that. I love how the cover of the book is not just, you know, cause I, I had seen, I had seen the cover of your book. I didn't know who those people were though. And so it's, Powerful. Yeah, that they were yourself, your ancestors, just amazing.
0: Can I tell you another tidbit about the research I was doing? Yeah. So, doing this work as a historian, anytime you're writing, it's, it can be very isolating because, like, unless you're at a cohort of people who are also writing, you're like by yourself, and right. um, I think you're alone with your thoughts, and that can be a place of strength, but can also be a place of bewilderment. I'm doing this research. And there's this picture of the Black Panther lunch program, right? And you can't see it here in the pictures, but on the archival footage, they're drinking orange juice. It's called Blair's orange juice, and I was like, "Wow, that's me." <laughs> it's not a common name, and I asked my dad about it, and he said that was a common um, that was a common orange juice in the '60s and '70s. Um, and then there was this other really spooky thing that I didn't actually include in the book, but I just felt seen by the ancestors, there's a portrait of these, uh it's like a middle-class Black family from 1899. Mm-hmm. And I think it was documented by W. B. Du Bois, if I'm not mistaken. It's in, like, his collections. He has just gone around the South and taken portraits of these Black families to show, like, we have family units, not just tough in the North. The little girl looks just like me. Wow. And I was shaken. I have it on my Instagram, but it's in the archives of just, like, you know, it was just so spooky. Because I showed my mom and my mom was like, When did we take that picture? What? Wow. Like, Mommy, this is from eight 18- <laughs> this is from eighteen ninety nine so yeah, I'm obsessed with that. Like when you see old portraits of people, like there's an entire Instagram account where they're like take a picture of someone and yeah. they'll be like, Look at this old man from eighteen forty five. Here's walk a flock of slave and they look the same. Right. And like, I love stuff like that. For, for, to me, me, it was just a moment where I was feeling so isolated in the work and in the archives. And that's a lot of hours alone. And then I opened this like manuscript and I see a portrait of me. <laughs> that was like a moment pa- where I was like, I'm on the right path.
1: Right. That's powerful. Um, Tell me a little bit about your, you're a historian. Tell me a little bit about your journey um, into becoming a historian. Why that path? I mean, and this is, I'll put my hand up as saying history was my absolute favorite subject at school. So I'm obsessed. I was
0: going to say least favorite. No, it was my
1: absolute favorite subject.
0: Well, for me, it was complex because the history that we see of ourselves, especially in the United States, is not a flattering one, is not an empowering one that doesn't mean that we don't have empowering stories it means that it's very selective in who is empowered and who is not once I was able to like realize that I was like oh okay so a scavenger hunt like this is like the best of all worlds where I get to like go on a hunt I can like you know play well where's Waldo but like with ancestral (laughs) histories and so um or where's Wally I think in the UK right Um, but (laughs) anyway yeah I'm also like I I just like to have encyclopedic knowledge of random things like the difference between where's Waldo and where's Wally. I'm bizarre that way. But it kind of started when I was, I think I was 12 years old and I was reading about the integration of Little Rock, Arkansas, Hmm.
2: the Little
0: Rock Nine. So those were nine students who at the age of 15 and 16 volunteered with Martin Luther King with their local NAACP chapter and said, hey, I'm going to volunteer to integrate schools. I have their names, actually, because I want to read them. I think that's important as well yes. to, like, name the people you're speaking about. Um, I should have it memorized, but there are nine of them. Okay. So we have uh, Ernest Green, Elizabeth Eckford, Jefferson Thomas, Terrence Roberts, Carlotta Walls Lanier, Minnie Jean Brown, Gloria Ray Carlmark, Thelma Mothershed, Melba Patillo Beals. So that was the nine. And they had to be escorted in by the airborne division like the national guard had to let like you know bring them to the school because if you've seen the photos of the young woman who's wearing the sunglasses yeah. to hide her eyes um she's just being harangued by these white people who are so intense on keeping these people separated anyway so i'm looking at the book the history book and we're supposed to keep our uh, this is like middle school short supply of textbooks we're supposed to keep the, the text at home i took it home because Big no no, um, because I saw a portrait and I'm looking at him and I was like, he looks so familiar. I have to go ask my dad who it is. Mm. Um, because like I was so interested in inserting myself into history, like there's Brown versus Board of Education. My family last name was Brown, so I was like, clearly we are related. We're not, um, <laughs> but it just like made me. I was grasping for ways right. to feel seen. I think is right. what it was. Anyway, I take it home and he goes, oh yeah, Blair Terry Roberts. That's my um, my fraternity brother he's our neighbor. And I was like, yo, what? Like he's in our history book. First of all, there's like five people wow. total in our history books who are black. And the fact that I have access to him is mind boggling. So, mind-boggling. so uh, we had to do a, a class project and I didn't have many friends. I was picked last, of course, but I felt like I had the best project in, like in middle school. That's like sixth through eighth year. The kids are going through puberty. They're not the nicest, friendliest kids. Anyway, so I get to class And so does my, uh, you know, classmate Katie Dumont. So I tell her what my project idea is that we're going to interview him. Like kind of like uh, Barbara Walters style. Mm. And she's like totally down. She tells her parents. Her parents both come over. They're all dressed in suits. My parents are like, you know, my mom made breakfast the way she shows love and food. Uh, my sister who had just graduated film school, she's about 10 years older than me. She was filming. Dr. Roberts comes over in his sweatpants because he's on his morning jog. And, you know, he's just casual. Like, this is what my whole life is. And so um, we interviewed him. And that interview video of me at 12 years old interviewing this legend of history is on YouTube because I uploaded it. And I was able to actually wow. cite it in my book.
2: That's so, incredible. Like, the
0: path of me being, it's really wild. And, like, you know, mashallah, child Blair. <laughs> Like, um <laughs> because I couldn't find that same candid discussion or that lengthy discussion of him. And so I was like, okay, well, I talked to him about this when I was 12. I have to find it somewhere else for me to cite it. And I was like, wait, no, I've done Mm -hmm. this research. This is like a primary account when I just cited it in my book. So I did. And I love telling that to young kids because so often the things that we are called to do is what we ends up being our calling. Right. But Few of us are thinking, like, oh, when I was 12, I was already a historian. Um, But that's really what got me started. And then, fast forward to college, where I went to school in Louisiana, Louisiana State University. We recently won a championship, so I'm proud to go there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Proud to have gone. We were learning the most, uh, what's the word? I think, one sided account of history, where we would hear things like the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. Right. And it's like, yeah, state's rights to slavery. Um, and I was asked to write like book reports on horrible figures of history, mm. like Huey P. Long, or just Huey Long. He's just a horrible man who was extremely racist, extremely swindling. Now, if you're a white person, he was great for you. And so like the one flattering thing I could say about him was that he created hospitals for black people. But why? Because he didn't want white nurses touching black skin. So wow. I just felt so expected to, like, there was one question I had on a test about uh, American history. I studied Reconstruction, so that's the period from the Civil War to about 1875 when um, Rutherford B. Hayes becomes elected and closes that period of history. It was this idea that, like, we're going to resettle Black people, mm-hmm. but it was really more of, like, we're going to antagonize the white Southerners. So it was mostly political. Anyway, I studied that, and there was this question on the textbook that said, what were elements of slave culture that kept the slaves resilient? And I was like, "Wee like, no, slave, like, wow, mm-hmm. like, what are the elements of like, African culture is what I guess you mean, um, that help people through the hardest parts of history, like the human will to survive. But like, it was
1: so many times where I felt like, I'm not going to answer this question. I'm going to rewrite the question and I'll answer the question. I, I'm just because like, I, I'm, I'm just like, just need a moment. For, <laughs> cause, and, how, and so that was in college that you encountered yeah. that kind of a question. And in that setting, what was the sort of like demographics of the students in your, in your class?
0: Well, by the time I got to those upper-level history classes, I was the only Black
1: student. Right. Okay. That's what I thought you were going to say. So to be in that kind of an environment, to come across that kind of a question, for it to just be so casually just posed, what was that experience like for you?
0: Well, so luckily, um, it was not the first experience I had of feeling extremely othered, even Mm -hmm. when I was like back in middle school. Mm -hmm. from middle school or for elementary school onward to uh, my first years of high school, I was the only black student in my class. And then we started having um, about four of us in a class, um, but we were also like very diasporic. So like uh, some folks were, one woman was from the islands and others from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, one kid was from Guatemala. He was intent on like making sure people knew he wasn't black, even though like I know his dad and he's black. Yes. Uh, and then there was me, the lightest of everyone. So pro-black, so out of the box so challenge everything um i had gone through this phase in middle school where i was like the teacher would be like blair can you pass all the white papers and i'd be like why are the papers white why does (laughs) the space have to be dominated by whiteness and the black pencil have to etch its way through to be seen and they'd be like blair what the hell (laughs) yeah there was one time where like i had just watched roots with um with LeVar Burton by yeah. Alex Paley. And uh, she goes, Blair Elizabeth Brown. I was like, that's my slave name. And she was like, what would you like me to call you? And I was like, I haven't thought that far yet. You know? <laughs> yes. Just right. I was like angry, right? justifiably so. Yes. But I didn't know what to do with it. Anyway, so yes. I found out to college. I was a little bit more settled, slightly. A little less extra, slightly. Um, and I would just meet with the history professors. And I was really good... Um, uh, like the, men- the person who became my mentor was this woman whose name is Sadie Roberts Joseph, Miss Sadie Roberts Joseph, and unfortunately she was recently murdered. And so I included uh, a quote from her, um, and like it was a very much like last moment. You know, she's on the last page mm. of the book where I have the dedication, um, and she said, or, "So it says this book is dedicated to Miss Sadie Roberts Joseph, who often reminded me." that culture is the glue that holds people together. Take a step back in time and leap into your future. Mm. And so it's very difficult for me to talk about because she was taken so abruptly. And like, it's one of those situations where you haven't heard from the person in a moment and you're excited to like share the next chapter of your life. And you find out on the news that her life had been extinguished in a very violent manner. Um, And so I had met her, you know, it's so she lived a full life. And my last memory of her is teaching a group of boys how to cut down a tree with a machete at like 80 years old. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) So I hold on to those, but, um, I had met her. And so I finally had like this representation of a black woman historian in my life, um, on the collegiate level. And then I had a teacher whose name is Dr. Slater and he's a professor he was the head of the history department at the time so he had a lot of pull he's also like you could tell he got into history during the 70s and that he's like I think that me speaking with him kind of reawakened this liberal element to him where he was like no follow what you believe in Mm. so I had coordinated a an internship between Miss Sadie and myself and the college and that hadn't existed before now mind you they had internships where you could do your advanced studies at plantations every plantation in the like 100 mile radius but the black museum that's in town of course they had no relationship with So Uh I, i established that and so i think that Because I had grown up being the only and feeling like I had to fight for my resources and having parents who were like, no, we'll advocate for you. By the time I got to college and I didn't have that support system, I started to create it around myself and then also think, okay, well, if this doesn't exist yet, how can I make it? Not just for me, but for the people who are coming after me. And so um, before I turned in my manuscript, I sent a letter to Dr. Slater and I was like, thank you giving me the ability and the reins to push back against the prompts and to like help change the curriculum. Because had I not had that, I think I really would have just been like lost.
1: Right. Can I, can I just say, as you're, as you're speaking, I'm so struck by, and this is something that I know about you because I've followed you in your work for some time now, but I'm really struck by the ways in which you are, you hold these different identities and at different identities. You experience othering and marginalization and your way of approaching that is, oh, I'll just create it so that it works for me. And I love that so much. It makes me something that I often think about when I'm interviewing most like black Muslim women or Muslim women is the kind of role models that my daughter will have coming up. And you're definitely one of them because you're just like, well, you know, thank you. You know, like obviously they don't know that the world has also got to work for me too. So I will just create it so that it works for me. And I just love that so much. I mean, it's so much to what I believe it means to be a good ancestor, which is you're recreating the world so that it works for you. But then you're also, because you're pioneering in so many different ways, then creating a track for people who are like, oh, well, Blair did it. So why can't I do it? You know, and so that I just you. I just want to acknowledge that and just appreciate you for that because as I said, I look at my daughter and I think about that I didn't have representation. We have like there's like a 10 year difference between you and I. So I had even less representation, right? <laughs> and so and we didn't have things like YouTube and, and the internet when I was coming up. So it just means so much to me that when I see you shining, when I see you doing your thing, it just makes me so proud.
0: Thank you so much. And I I know where I get it from. I get it from my mother because, so my younger sister, she's autistic and bipolar and we're, again, the only black kids in the school system. And she fought so arduously to make sure that my sister was included in her, like, courses she needed for um, additional resources, the special education program, but then also that she was able to, like, make friends and be socialized and be with people and not be sequestered. And what she would do would be well a better example is when my brother was dealing with a teacher who was racist my mom was adamant that he would not be in that teacher's class so she wrote a letter and she went through the phone book and she found the fax number emails and the story like kind of emails getting popular in the early 2000s Mm. the emails fax numbers and telephone numbers of all of the state officials and their bosses and sacramento which is like where all the school districts are headquartered in, in, in california And not only did she email everyone and CC everyone, (laughs) she faxed the same letter to make sure that they could not avoid her. And that would be the first thing on their desk in the morning.
2: Wow.
0: Um, And she told me the process because she was like, you know, look at what I had done. But it was also like a training ground because, you know, this school system was not created for us. And how are we going to demand that it would be? And then all the while, I have my father kind of telling me that, like, you know, your people, our our people – came on slave ships, and we survived Jim Crow, and we survived this. Interesting, because I often hear like immigrant families, like Monique Lay's family, for example, like, we survived the Civil War in Vietnam. We survived this. So when you get a bad grade, it's a reflection of how much you don't care. And like my parents would do the same thing to me. They'd be like, mm. this is what our ancestors went through. So this is what we experienced. You have a duty. And I think that idea of duty really makes it beyond yourself. And it, it's yes. easier to advocate for yourself because you realize you're not, it's not just
1: you. Yes. That's so powerful. I'm so glad you brought up your mom as well, because she is clearly such an important part of your life and such a huge influence on you. I watched a video today of you and your mom on YouTube. I think it was for It Gets Better. And I loved watching the two of you together. And it's so clear that she, and this, so I want to, Choosy about how I use my words because I don't want to project anything onto your relationship that I'm not aware of. But what do it? Yeah, no, but what it. I see <laughs> as and what I observe and what I witness is a woman, your mother, a woman who has raised you in such a way that you are your own person. And although she holds different identities to you, she is white, she is not Muslim. Correct.
0: She's white passing, she's mixed. But yeah, she's, she she looks
1: white. Yes, she is white passing, and she is not Muslim. Is my understanding, um, and yet is just like you can tell, just ride or die. Like I will create this world so my daughter can thrive, and it's just I, again as a mother, I'm just I'm just like yes, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and she's you can fierce she is fierce and you can see that how that's come through to you, but it's fierce love. It's this really fierce love. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with your mom and how that's influenced you, how it impacts you and how you show up in the world.
0: I just have to say, my mother, people think I'm like the most liberal person in the world. My mom is way more liberal than me, right. way more liberal than me. <laughs> like growing up, so my brother's gay, I'm Bisexual, and I think my mom like had inklings of this, but you know mothers know their children, you know, like, and so instead of trying to suppress or like, like my grandmother would tell my father like, oh you better spend more time with your son or he's gonna end up gay, and my mom be like, well he already is, you know. Also, it doesn't work like that. Let's nurture that. Yeah, no, that's it's it's such a trope. I think that we hear. um and so my mom, instead of being like, oh, yeah, let's put him in all the masculine activities, she was just like, okay, well, let's figure out what he likes. And mm-hmm. let's make sure that he's also like educated when it comes to sex ed like time that he's having an inclusive sex ed. So my mom, you know, we're in the, we're sat in the doctor's office and there's four years difference between my brother and I. So he's like in high school, I'm in middle school. My mom has this, uh, our doctor tell us about how to have safe anal sex, what, you know, condoms are, what stands are what lubricants are just like it's really into it and we were like so mortified first of, <laughs> of all sex ed is like ah you know not what you I mean pff, loaded you know what right. I mean Taboos, right. lots of things going on but my mom was so adamant that we would have it from a medical perspective and that it would not be influenced by by stigma and then she gave me this really extensive book it was like one of those my body and me books and I hid it, like, underneath the couch because I was not ready to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but she gave it to me she wanted me to have it. And so, like, that's just kind of, like, the atmosphere I up in. Um, the thing is, though, when we would see a Muslim woman in a hijab, she would start, like, vocalizing her laments that that woman was denied agency and that this woman is being oppressed. And, like, kind of this one-sided American feminism, I think, that is... right unfortunately so common and that you know made me even more interested in Islam I mean I'm Muslim today so clearly um but it was one of those things where I realized okay my mom is so accepting what is really going on that this accepting liberal empathetic compassionate woman is viewing these people in one way Mm -hmm. um and so that made me curious but once I start once I converted to Islam like I recently posted a side-by-side photo of myself, like a six-month period where I saw it. I'm in natural hair. Yeah. And like the funny thing is I'm in overalls in that photo and I had cropped it, but like I was wearing like a see-through bra. So like, you know, freezing nipple and like right. overalls. And then six months later, I'm in like a full suit where I'm wearing a turtleneck under the suit and like a white job, And um, I'm the same person, but I had started to witness, um, a, like, you know, pay witness to a lot Uh, through my clothing. And I think that six month period was particularly jarring for my mother. One because she had these kind of stigmatized beliefs about Islam, but two because she didn't raise me in that way. She's very much body affirming and for her it was a I think a learning curve for her to realize that no, I still love my body. Um in fact one of the reasons I cover is because I felt like my body didn't belong to me in the Mm. context of a white patriarchy and being a black woman and understanding what feminism does and does not mean for us. And so it really wasn't until she saw the burkini ban in France. Now, let me tell you, the first time I wore a hijab in front of my mother, we were in a grocery store. She had just taken it from the airport, and she just took it from my head. And that, one, taught me I needed to tie it more securely. And two, that, like, okay, this is going to be the growing pain for us because, like, she was like, no daughter of mine is going to wear this you
1: know. And, and, and just to um, interrupt you, how long had you been, had you converted and started wearing the hijab immediately or had you converted? No, and then- I started,
0: it was about a year before
1: mm. I started.
0: And so it was like, I think my first time home wearing it and she was very upset about it. And that was like, Okay. And I think sometimes when you have growing pains with your parents, whether that's because you're queer or because you um, are in a relationship with someone they don't approve of or you're wearing a hijab and they don't approve or you're not, you know, it might draw you to be more independent. So that's what it did for me. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get a full-time job. I'm going to make sure that I'm financially secure because I want to make like, you know, really convey to them that, Mm. you know, there's an element of control that comes with financial dependence and I want to sever that. And so I, you know, got my job Planned Parenthood, and it just pushed me, I think, to grow up a little bit more. Now, flash forward to when the Bertini ban is happening next summer, the summer following, and my mom sends me this article, and we had not really spoken about the spat that we had. Like, we're still kind of cordial. We would talk about Islam, and we just changed the subject because it was a a sore spot.
2: Mm. I talked
0: to my mom every day, so it wasn't like I could, like, cut her off emotionally like we're best friends so I was like it's just one thing we're not going to talk about anyway so the bikini van happens she sends me the article and she goes Blair look at how they're treating this woman on the beach they're taking her hijab away <laughs> who would do that and I was like <laughs> you're like I, I wonder why... who <laughs> I don't know who would do that and so um it's kind of this unfocused thing where she was like
2: oh shit
0: yeah I did that you know um and now she's like And the way that she shows love is by cooking. And so she started to cook food that was, like, intentionally without pork and Mm. um, starting, you know, replacing when she makes pot of greens, collard greens, she makes it with turkey instead of making it with pork. And it's Mm -hmm. just as good. And, um, but, like, we still have this kind of, like, fun antagonism between us where, like, I came home after, you know, I wasn't home for, like, six months and I came back to California. And I opened the refrigerator and I'm like, oh, I see you're all still eating swine, (laughs) you know? And so... Um, you know, my parents started reading like steps of the prophet and, um, you know, what Christians should know about Muslims and things like that. And they started making the effort. My dad, on the other hand, you know, he grew up in the, he he was born in 1950. He grew up in the sixties and seventies. A lot of his friends converted to Islam, Mm. you know, his friend, Steve, who lives in Atlanta, who I often stay with uncle Steve he has this beautiful Quran that he got from the Muslim student association at Harvard. And if you open it, it has a little post-it note that says, make sure to place on the highest shelf in your house, wash your hands before touching. You know, if you're going mm-hmm. to pray, make sure to bathe first. And it has like just like shorthand notes. And so everyone is very curious, especially black Americans became very curious during that time as the back Africa movement is happening and the black is beautiful movement is happening. So I got to totally relate, but my mom, you know, she spends a lot of time watching television and, those biases are very uh, profitable to create. And I think she became a casualty of that. But now she's like 100% right or die.
1: I think, yeah, I think what you're speaking to is, is the sort of, as you said, like the media-driven perception of what it means to be a Muslim woman and that covering with a hijab or dressing modestly is seen through the white gaze as being a loss of agency and a loss of independence and a loss of everything, right? It's just like, it's oppression, you know? And you just spoke about actually, for me, wearing the hijab is me taking back my agency. And Absolutely. And do you find, because this is what I have found. So I used to be a hijabi. I'm not anymore, although I'm wearing a scarf now, but I'm not a hijabi. But I was for a very long time. And, and I think for every woman, it's, you know, it's about your independent relationship with God. So at no point am I ever like, I feel like I need to explain why I don't wear the hijab anymore, or a woman should have to explain why she's chosen to wear the hijab. Like that's your own personal relationship with God. But as I said, there is this media driven perception of She's being forced. She, she doesn't have any agency over herself. Have you found that when you explain to people, no, actually, like for me, my religion is a feminist religion. And this is a choice for me that I make out of a sense of agency that people don't believe you.
0: I think that there's somewhat less of that. I think that like the whole, people call it the whole gay thing, you know, me being bisexual and really believing that I can be a practicing Muslim and be a queer person at the same time because, you know, Allah is infinite and so is Allah's love and understanding and creation. That tends to supersede the conversation about hijab. What I had found, however, is that I became irksome to some uh, other social media, well-known social media Muslims, particularly women, Who found it irksome that I was bobbing and weaving between wearing a hijab and deciding not to and really investigating that. I think it was 2018 where I shaved my head. Mm. And I actually went to the same barbershop that Malcolm X would go to in Harlem. Um, So that was really cool. And it was also a spiritual experience for me and also like a regrounding of like, what does femininity mean to me? And what does covering mean? And like, I don't have any hair, so I'm not going to cover anything that I, you know, and like. and but what does it mean to symbolically like wear this? Da, da, da. Um, and I got confronted. I'm not going to name names because I think that's uncouth, but like, have you stopped wearing it? Like, what are you doing? Just kind of these invasive questions.
2: Right. Um,
0: where there are some people who feel because I'm a convert, because I'm black, because I'm bisexual, um, because I have a fluid relationship with hijab, that I'm not Muslim. And I think that also there is, like somebody who's been really inspirational to me is Dina uh, Torquia,
2: mm.
0: who um, she has a book about modesty, who's really powerful, and she wearing hijab full time. The book comes out and not necessarily connected to it, but she makes a decision within herself to start showing hair and like not wearing a head covering, but still dressing modestly. And people are like, what the heck? Yeah. The same person who was haranguing me about being having a fluid relationship with hijab Then starts talking about online how policing people's hijab is a sexual violence. And I'm sitting there like, (laughs) is it? Is it, ma'am? And so I think that it just takes people being brave and speaking up and saying, you know, every morning we wake up, we should decide if you wear a hijab that you want to. And it's not because you're expected to or you're being forced to. That's the goal. Um, it's a constant conversation with the law, but it's also rooted in like the Ro- Greek and Roman practices of noble women wearing their head covered right. and how that translated into iterations of Christianity and Judaism and then how that manifested within Islam and how it was a practical matter, especially during the in the region where Islam grew out of and like how it's been enforced on the pa- how the patriarchy has enforced it onto women and also how men are expected to cover as well. If you mm-hmm. you know look at some uh, interpretations of text. So, being a historian, like, I, I can do that defensive theology, but I also people think that people are very selective, that they look at me, they see me as a public figure, and they want consistency, but things are not that black and white. You know, there are days I wake up where I'm like, I'm not wearing a hijab, or my grandmother really cannot wrap her mind around um, this one, uh, honorary grandparents. She really cannot wrap her mind around me wearing a hijab, and it's just better if I don't in front of her, so I don't mm-hmm. in front of her. Mm-hmm. And, like... I'll post a picture of us all hanging out. He's like, oh, have you stopped wearing a hijab? And it's like, no, I'm just a regular everyday person. And so many people come to me with questions of like, I noticed that sometimes you do and sometimes you don't wear hijab. Like, is that allowed? And it's like, you shouldn't come to me with your questions about law." Now, I, I think that like the communal conversation, that's important, but you, you're the one who decides that. Right. Um, if it doesn't feel authentic to you, then don't, but also don't feel like it's... Um, something we have to achieve like it's some type of zenith we achieve and all of a sudden when you wear a hijab you are the most virginal pure Muslimi muslim
1: oh th- you know? yeah it just grants you know powers like that you know it just <laughs> perfection just descends upon you you
0: know <laughs> and it, it's it's if it was that simple where you could right. cover your head and all of a sudden be the most adherent muslim in the world right to be a hijabi right you know? right but i think that's one of the harms of the way that it's talked about in the media is that even ourselves as Muslims start to project these uh, stereotypes upon ourselves that if you're a hijabi, you behave this way. That's so one dimensional and so not reality. But human beings, we, I think that fundamentally we struggle with this idea of like, here's a list of rules. I'm going to adhere to them completely because that I have it before. Mm. We are based on habits. We are based on practice. We are based on what feels real and authentic to us and the manner of which we dress doesn't change that. And I think that six, that going back to that six month period where I had fundamentally changed how I was dressing, like it was extremes. I was going to, I was really trying to adopt this vision of what I thought a Muslim was supposed to look like right. and not look like, cause I was Muslim in both instances. Right. Yeah, still am, but I felt more Muslim and, some of it actually came from, you know, I was uh, arrested at these protests in 2016 around the murder of Alton Sterling by -hmm. the Baton Rouge police. And I'm like, there's this photo of me that went really viral. I'm wearing shorts and the short sleeve. I'm wearing a hijab and I'm getting arrested. And I feel like in that moment, I'm completely bearing witness to a law, you know, I'm taking an arrest, not intentionally, but I was being arrested standing up for what I believe and my beliefs and standing up for people who are oppressed. But people didn't see that, what they saw as a non-adherent Muslim, making Muslims look bad. And I'm thinking, how bonkers is it that we as a community, especially in the United States, I think, because of the way that we are surveilled and we are harassed and we're misrepresented, are more concerned with the manner of dress of someone mm. than their actions. And so I had tweeted that sometimes people are more concerned with what looks good, than Mm -hmm. what is a stance of integrity? Because protest is a form of prayer, in my opinion. It's part of the good works that we do. It's part of zakat. It's part of the sacrifices we make. And that's what drew me into Islam. What did not draw me into Islam was this idea of like, oh, what's your thread count of your abaya? You know, like, are you wearing silk or are you wearing jersey fabric? Like, that's not, that was not what was interesting to me. So yeah, I think it was just this whole conversation. It's just been a path of me realizing that like, the same things in society that inhibit people from spiritual awakening, those exist within all religions. Mm-hmm. And I had left Christianity and I was like, oh, Islam will be perfect. Nothing is perfect. But I do feel that the word of Allah is perfect, but Muslims are not. And I think that's where a lot of the tension resides. But I'm extremely hopeful because it also means that we can change and we can grow.
1: Thank you so much for that. You know, something you you just spoke about really resonated with me. and And that's around this idea of reputation versus character and how things look versus, you know, the intention behind it. And also that for me, Islam and the 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 sort of foundations behind it really inform a lot of why I do the kind of work that I do. Because it's Islam that teaches us that we're all supposed to be equal in God's eyes. It's Islam that teaches us that and I remember like really making this distinction years ago that work is a form of worship. It's a form of ibada. And so I was looking at what is the work that I'm doing? Does this feel worshipful to me? You know what I mean? And it didn't at that time years ago. Um, and that activism, and as you you were just saying, protest is, you know, you're really bearing witness. It resonates so much to hear it from another Muslim woman as well, because that's definitely how I feel about it. Without that foundation for me, and everyone has their foundation that they draw from, right? To replenish them in doing this kind of work, which can be quite draining and heartbreaking. Like, there has to be a source from which you can re- to which you can return again and again to find hope and to find replenishment and for me that is islam um and so hearing you talk about your relationship with with islam and what that means for you is just is really beautiful thank you for sharing that
0: thank you so much i'm glad it resonated
1: yeah so i recently watched your tedx talk um, oh, thank you! It was amazing. Uh, can you tell thank us you. the the title of it? Sure, it's um, queer and Muslim. Nothing to reconcile.
0: And I loved it. Uh, I didn't get to pick the title. They, what they do? I'm not sure about all TED Talks, but for that particular structure, they have you give your talk, and you don't have a title, which is like super jarring to me because I feel like the title is like your headline, you know? Right. And like then you can really go back to that mission, but. It's funny because the title actually came out of this joke that my mom was very adamant to be included in the TED Talk, which is that, you know, people always come to me and they're saying, how do you reconcile your identities, reconciliation, reconcile, blah, blah, blah. And My mom's like, reconcile? Yeah. You don't reconcile identities, you reconcile checkbooks. You know? Right. <laughs> and so that was so funny to me because she'll go, you know, she'll be in the office, she'll be like, oh, I'm just reconciling the, the, um, the payroll accounts or whatever. And... Um, the joke ended up being the title and she's like, yeah, another win for mom. Um, (laughs) But so much of what I do is very intentional. And so part of the talk, you know, I essentially talk about my life and like how I realized I was queer and me converting to Islam and then realizing, oh, well, you know, while I was converting to Islam, I didn't stop and go, oh sorry, there's a big exclusion here when you open the text that says no gays, no trans, no bisexual, no lesbian, like there's nothing like that. A lot of it is cultural interpretation. And that exists within Christianity, within Mormonism, within um just every religion. And so how do I navigate that? And it became an aspect. After- so I converted, you know, took the Shahada, Muslim, feeling great.
1: Then, and you and you uh, were already you were already sort of clear about your sexual identity at that stage. So it was like the sexual identity stuff came first when you were younger, and then Islam came into your life later on.
0: And then it was kind of being presented with the societal notion, particularly after the Pulse shooting, mm. that Muslims and LGBTQ people must be diametrically opposed, that there is no intersection there. And so then I started to get into this, again, defensive theology to figure out how can I defend myself within the scripture? Um, and the example that I use now that,
1: oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, because you, before you had to get into like proving it to other people, right? You were already you though, right? Like Yeah, I felt solid. <laughs> you were already you. And so for people to ask you to, prove that your identities are real is so ridiculous, but is a reality that you and so many people face.
0: And it's like, um, Feminista Jones, who's an amazing writer and just versus women and girls, amazing advocate. Um, she says, just because you're new to me doesn't mean I'm new to this. Mm. And I was like, you know, so a lot of work I do is trying to catch people up. Right. But then I also realized, okay, this is an opportunity to help people. So like people will send me screenshots with like their location while they're watching the talk and people are using it to come out to their parents because it um wow. I think makes a compelling case for queerness in Islam and to self this by saying you shouldn't have to justify your existence. Right. But we live in a world where people demand that of us and if I'm able to do that work so somebody else can, you know, save their emotional health to do, you know, to not have to go through that, then I'm happy to be of service. But everything in that TED talk was intentional. So First, they told me to wear a suit. I was like, no. I'm very high Sam. I like being very like frilly and pink yeah. and you know, just so I'm wearing this like very frilly pink outfit. And I'm actually wearing the same hijab that I wore on stage.
1: I thought and, so. I was like, it looks familiar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. I love it. <laughs> um and so uh they were so I like totally like I was like, you know, this is a subject matter that isn't seen often. I'm gonna do it my own way. But I also had this, like, last-minute addition where I talk about how I used to work at Heineken USA, Same, you know, Heineken, the beer company, mm. um, while I was Muslim. And so I put that in there as a date because people who are, you know, adherents, fundamentalists, whatever, Muslims, conservative folks, they should be equally alarmed, perhaps more alarmed, because it is explicitly stated multiple times about alcohol, about the sale of alcohol, about the conversation on alcohol, mm. both in the culture of taboos and within the text, that that's Haram, so you know? But... Then they're like, you know, more focused on one thing than the other. So there's this one person in particular, a man from Minnesota, who reached out to me over Twitter and starts haranguing me about, so you're a queer Muslim, da-da-da. like, how does it feel to be a sin that all kinds of, and I'm just like, whatever, dude. And this so, is like, we got to a point of agreement. And then he goes, well, anyway, it's cool that you wrote at Heineken. And I was like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just picking and choosing. It's
0: about, I think for him, it was about what looks good right what is good you know so like if you're truly and i've said this so many times on twitter like people who are like concerned about my islamic knowledge it's like great pay for me to go to islamic school you know pay for me to get my master's in theology but you're not actually concerned with that you just want me to be silent so that your voice can be heard more often you don't actually care about my salvation as a muslim you care about what it looks, and you think it looks very prestigious towards at Heineken, but you're looking at me being queer and you're thinking, oh, this is a blight on Islam, this is harmful. Mm. But I don't think I was even able to do the type of work that is involved in that TED Talk before I let go of this idea that all Muslim public figures have to represent Islam and be Muslim-spoken people.
1: Right. Because, you mean you oh don't? God, you, you, mean you How don't, exhausting. You don't represent every Black Muslim queer woman in the world, Blair? Not even. And like... <laughs> getting to that layer
0: too is frustrating because, you know, when I came out, a lot of people, like I came out in a very volatile, uh, yes. intense way. Yes. Um, to, to Tucker Carlson. To television. Right. Yeah. And I, I was not planned. You know, some of these people, they look at me and they're like, you are a shrewd businesswoman, Blair. And I'm like, uh, I'm a Scorpio. And I was correcting a dude. Okay. Right. And so he was saying that I'm not here to speak on behalf of black people people muslim or i'm just here to speak on muslim and i was like well actually i'm all of the above sir mm-hmm. you know i didn't say sir because i don't respect him but then i came out and then i was uninvited from so many events like so many different mosques were like having an event with me and they cut me off and people were blocking me just because you know a lot of people were claiming that it's because i um worked with fox news but you know people will cover up their bigotry in all types of different ways so that happened and that really freed me, I think, from this idea that I have to do Islam 101 every time, mm. or even if that works. Mm. Um, so it was a blessing in disguise for sure, because I felt very abandoned. I felt very isolated. But then I realized that there are so many other people who need to hear just somebody being free, because regardless of where you stand on the question, and I don't think it should be a question, but it is a question of queerness in Islam, people shouldn't feel like they have to leave Islam because of who they are. Nowhere in the Quran does it say that, that you have Mm. to stop being Muslim because of who you are, um, that you should be punished because of who you are. But at the same time, I meet people who, like I met this young man named Sammy, whose friend is, you know, she passed because her family compelled her to kill herself once she came out. And that is not Islamic. That is not human. That is evil. And when I hear stories like that, it really makes me even more adamant to do this work because I have a support system that is with me regardless of what the larger Muslim community feels about me. And I have the safety of, you know, being in liberal Southern California and having a house with, you know, security cameras on it and not everyone else is safe to do that work. So I think constantly of the people who are trapped in realities where, they are living in a theocracy, they are living in a patriarchy, or just, you know, our regular everyday society here right. in the United States or abroad that compels them to change themselves. Because I fortunately have that freedom to be myself every day. And I want to use that intentionally every day.
1: So powerful. Um, tell me about community for you. Because like you were saying, you know, holding these different identities, especially not just being, not just within the Muslim community, but in the world, in a homophobic, anti-Black, misogynistic world, can mean that you are pushed to the margins often. And it's like this idea that you're just this rare unicorn, there's only one Blair, there's only, no one else has these identities, but obviously that's not true. What does community mean for you? And how do you, in a world where your beautiful self is having to contend with these different systems of oppression. Like, how do you take care of yourself?
0: I think that one of the things that helped me was reframing how I look at myself and making sure it wasn't in the terms of society.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and so I had gone to Kenya and
1: like this, Yay. one of the women there, Olivia. So my, this is Tennessee where my me. dad is from. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. So it was great because, so for context, my father had gone uh, during He did Operations Crossroads Africa in 1970, and he was in Ethiopia and in Kenya. And we had always grown up with, like, Maasai warrior figurines in the house. Mm. Like, I was caught around the mahogany and, like, sat right by the fireplace and in all our family photos because we, as Black Americans, are intentionally, you know, separated from knowing where we are from. Right. And so my dad kind of was like, well, this is where we're going to be from now, you know? And we did our ancestry. We we're absolutely not from Kenya. But, hey, <laughs> you're still rolling with it. Right. When I got to Kenya, the first person to like, greet us there was in full Maasai warrior regalia. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Superman. Like, I grew up with you in my house, you know? So that was really awesome. But as I was there at the end, uh, we had, like, spoken to these girls' schools and met, like, locals and met villagers and um, learned about how water conservation is important, et cetera. And Olivia, she was, like, telling me – because every day I would tell her, like, a different story or a different part of myself. Like, I, I definitely – converse with people from a lens of like my experiences. And so she said to me, you are a flower with many petals. Mm. And I was like, I started crying because that is like the most poetic way to capture the complexity, but also the beauty of one's identity. And I think that we live in a world that tells us the more labels you have, the more identities you have, the more oppressions you experience. And that's it. And it's like, books on a bookshelf or bricks on a ledge and eventually that shelf is going to crack Right, and it will be your fault because you couldn't hold it up together and instead of that look at yourself as like a flower with many petals because no one's looking at a hydrangea and going oh that's like too much that's way too much you know like they're like oh wow how beautiful it might not be your favorite flower but you're still gonna like you don't tell it it's too much, you know what I mean? And so if we look at ourselves that same way and realize that like parts of ourselves the will to for me that was Christianity and then New Petal Bloom that was Islam and that's really helped me like think about myself in a more poetic way where I'm a complex being and that's important and that's who I am but then also thinking about the ways that yeah, this part of me subjects me to more oppressions but not because of who I am, it's because Be- the world Right,
1: that's right.
0: creates that that's environment. Right. So like, there was this um, recently, the Title VII arguments around being deciding whether or not it's allowed to fire people for being gay. Like It's one of those things, again, where like legal and integrity in, you know, don't always match up, right. um, and we have to do what's right for human rights. But it was one of those situations where it's like, no, it's not hard to be gay in the world because there's something wrong with us. Right. It's hard to be gay because we live in a homophobic, transphobic society That's that right. doesn't create infrastructure for us. Or um, like in modern history, I talk about Carmen Perez, who grew up in a community that was surrounded by violence, not because Latinos are violent. That's absolutely not true. It's because the war on drugs created the environment of scarcity and police violence, where it became unstable because it was being constantly provoked to be that way. So really trying to reframe and recenter why we describe things the way they are instead of just describing the symptoms we describe the cause. So that's what really keeps me whole. And then also, I think that thinking of Audre Lorde's discussion of self-care, like so many people now are getting woke to the fact that it's not just bubble baths and stuff, even though I do love a bubble bath and I do love some ice cream, you know? Mm -hmm. It's about um, rooting yourself in community because when you get detached from community, that's what oppressive structures want us to be. They want us to be separated. They want us to um, be tokenized and be projected and seen as separate and anomalous. Right. And I realized that as I was coming out, people were trying to portray me as the gay Muslim. And that was at the peril, you know, like that, that basically, you know, elevated me to a certain position, but at the peril of other people and at the peril of myself. The,
1: because that's what that I was going to say. So much, at the peril of your mental health, right? And, yeah, and safety. Because then I'm right. like,
0: I'm the only one. Right. I'm the target. Right. Um, And like the whole idea of their strength in numbers is so true, not just because like you're spreading out the responsibilities but because you can also be like hey what are you going through and there's this one um young man who I got in touch with Abdi Ali in um I think he, oh he's in Ohio and he and I were chatting and we were both in our bonnets just facetiming yeah. and just talking about like what it means when you go to the mosque and like the Arabs don't want to pray next to you because you're black and right. um how Arabs treat me when they realize I'm not Arab I am black and like right. talking about these things and it was just a moment of like replenishment because we're going through the same shit. And that is so important. Like you have to be able to celebrate with people who can celebrate things that you're celebrating, you know, like sometimes it means something different. Like say, for example, you get a promotion. If you're celebrating with somebody who also has just gotten a promotion, that's a different type of celebration, Yeah, you know, but you can also celebrate with people who, um, you know, or just happy for you. Yes. But you can also grieve with people who are going through the same things as you. And so that's what my self-care has looked like is realizing that I'm complex and that's beautiful, but also other people are as well. And part of my job is that as I get notoriety and attention or whatever, um, and then, you know, bookings and such, that I bring people with me. And that's what brought me to do the work with Muslims for Progressive Values, which has mm-hmm. completely become my community because people were reaching out to me um, like one young man reached out to me from Egypt and he needed to seek asylum because he's gay. In the United States, you can't necessarily seek asylum because of your LGBTQ identity. Right. Um, you can claim like religious minority status, disability, et cetera, but that's not something that's protected. And so I didn't understand the intricacies of that. And without an infrastructure, it's very hard for one person to save the world, you know? And so I started working with Ani Zanabelt, who's the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values. And she's someone who's very well-connected, who's very knowledgeable, who's been doing um, this work specifically with MPB since 2007. and has a broad network of human rights lawyers who can actually like plug in and then help that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is beautiful because more people get helped, but also because I'm not then forced or in a position where I am letting people down because right. if you try to be a person who helps the world by themselves, you will let people down because you cannot spread yourself that thin.
2: That's right. And um, you
0: cannot accomplish everything yourself. That's right. And yeah, if you look at the great people throughout history, it was not just them, but they are positioned. You have people like Martin Luther King who are positioned as being the one savior, but you know, not even Jesus rolled below. Jesus that's, had apostles, you know what right. I mean? And that's crucial to hold on to and to remember.
1: This is so important And it's something that I feel very strongly about personally, because I know for myself in my own journey that obviously I'm the one doing my work, but I also know that without all the people who are holding me and walking with me on this journey, whether they're my family, my friends, my peers, my professional team, you know, so many different people, I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. And to as you said like to walk it alone and to be to allow ourselves to be tokenized or to be put on a pedestal or to be chosen as the one is not fair to anyone it's not fair to anyone at all and so this is a really important point that you're making i know that you're a mental health advocate and i'm guessing that's because of your own journey around that in terms of like what you've learned as you yourself have gone through the ups and downs with your mental uh, well-being, what are some of the things that you're really, like the big lessons that you've learned this year?
0: Oh, so many, so many. So like in January, I was kind of in this very low point in my mental health where I was spreading myself very thin, where I was trying to be a one woman warrior team. And I wasn't really letting people into the experiences I was having. And crucially here, I was putting so much weight into online friendships and like conversations and relationships that I was feeling very empty because it's hard to tell if someone is your genuine friend or they just want to retweet from you or just want to feature from you and that's something that's not just online like a lot of people who are in all different elements experience that like is this person really want to be in my study group or am I really smart in this class? And they're trying to like, you know- Capitalize
1: on that, that, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So
0: are they they trying to capitalize on the moments I'm part of? And so um, as I was doing this, I'm researching for this book and it became so isolating. And I start like researching about like the FBI and the influence of like surveillance and Mm. destruction on organizing movements. And I started to become justifiably paranoid. Because I myself had been subjected to surveillance and, you know, having to deal with law enforcement because we don't really have infrastructure as a community to protect against some of these things. So anyway, all that happens, And it all just kind of blows up. I think it was like on the 19th of January where I just told Twitter. I was like, hey, I want to talk about something because I had felt so like I had such a familial relationship with people online they're like, hey, let me let you into this vulnerable part of myself. I started talking about how I had to go to the FBI because I was being harassed. And like, literally people were sending me pictures of me on my commute on the train and being like, we're going to get you. So wow. I spoke to another elder in the Muslim community. He was like, what do I do? And he was like, go to the FBI. So I was like, okay, I did. Went alone. Big mistake. If you ever have to go to law enforcement and you were like, by yourself, bring a lawyer with you. Bring, you, bring somebody who's been to law school, just bring anyone else with you because they will try to isolate you um, and get in your head because we live in a, you know, we live in that surveillance state. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was having this conversation, they're trying to like persuade me to be like the Muslim on the inside. And I'm just like, dude, I just oh, don't want to wow. die. Like, can you just take care of that? And so I never turned anything over, but I still had this guilt that I was so like foolish and stupid, you know, like I just felt like, man, they got me. Not because I, like, turned over to them or anything, but just because, like, wow, I was in such a vulnerable position, and they tried to take advantage of that. Because at the end of the day, it's a American law enforcement protects America first, not necessarily its people. So anyway, I talked about that. Of course, Twitter is not the place for nuance at all. So immediately, no, the conversation shifted into, Blair's the police, Blair loves cops, Blair's the feds, da mm. There was one woman who had joined into this bandwagon who actually, like, advised, the homeland security team and she was like going after me and I was like what the heck like it was just oh, it's, so, it's so bonkers like now I can look back on it and really be like wow a lot of this is a really opportunistic way to get rid of me because I am this very liberal anomalous Muslim even though right. I, I feel like there are a lot of people who are like me that have this you know really nuanced relationship with the Anyway. So I took myself into a mental health facility because I was starting to experience ideation and I was starting to feel like there's no way out of this. And then I spoke to the psychiatrist there the morning after, and it was just good for me to like check myself in and really like evaluate why am I feeling this way? Like I'm a danger to myself. Let me separate myself from that, you know? And I talked to the guy and I tell him the story, talk about the FBI and everything. And he goes, Oh honey. Okay. So this is a delusion. And this isn't really happening. And he starts just like gaslighting me because
1: wow. you know, he doesn't
0: know me from a hole in the wall. He doesn't know me from anyone else. So and he thinks, thinks you're I'm just
1: imagining the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I'm getting ready to like never leave this facility, probably. And so I was like, Can you Google me? And he was like, Sure. So he googled me. He's like, Oh, okay, so all this really happened. And I was like, Yeah. He's like, Oh, you're fine. This is you're just as paranoid as you should be. This is you can go home. And like that was such a reality check for me because The realities we experience, you know, I've talked about radicalization and I've talked about the effects on mental health, but I didn't realize the ways that like the surveillance state was affecting my mental health, even Mm -hmm. as I'm talking about it. Because we find that like even people who are involved in like feminism and anti domestic violence will confine themselves in abusive relationships. It's just because you're doing the work doesn't mean you're exempt from the world we live in. Right. And so I started to like, I was really glad that like, you know, I had posted this like really long thing where I was just like, hey, y'all, like, I've gotten to the point where all the bragging and harassment, whatever, I'm checking myself into the hospital because this has put me in such a bad way. Like, if you look at all of human history, there have not been moments where thousands upon thousands of people can tell you and speak about you in such a negative way and you hear about it immediately.
1: Just like bombarded, just bombarded, right? Yeah.
0: It's like being, having tomatoes thrown at you on the stage, but like it's virtual. So it's just happening for everyone. People who are saying things like, you know, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it just felt like I was, I was done and that nothing was ever going to get better. Who were saying things like, wow, I follow Blair. I wonder if she put me at risk for surveillance. And I'm like, your tweets are public. I don't know you. Like one, I was not infiltrated. And two, what the heck? Like, who are you? I, I understand. (laughs) I understand why it came out that way, because it's scary to think that people who are doing work are being harassed. That's frightening. And I think for a lot of folks I represented, you know, this is a contained issue. It's just me. It's just my problem. I'm just at fault. It's not a larger system. But that's also what systems want. They want us to be separated. So I started to think, you know, I got completely offline. My manager, Marielle, who's amazing, she took over. My partner, Akeem, he did this whole thread that it's gone now because he made a new Twitter account. But he was saying, if there's anybody who knows whether or not Blair Mommy was working with the FBI, it's the nigga that lived with her. And <laughs> no, she was not. You know, like he was right. being so blunt and he never gets on Twitter or into beefs or anything. But he felt like he even needed to defend me. Mm-hmm. So I realized, OK, what is the toxicity that is in this whole conversation? It's because Twitter rewards outrage. Twitter does not... Yes. Foster nuance, and I cannot rely on these things for fulfillment. Whether I'm looking at Instagram for likes
2: no. and feeling
0: better about myself, because that's it's not permanent, it's not rooted in reality. So I started thinking, okay, this is a, a means to an end. This is my business, mm-hmm. and I also wanted to make space for people who are similarly isolated. So what I started doing is making myself available to people who are going through similar difficulties. So Mm -hmm. I have a friend who was outed by the Theresa May administration as a queer Muslim. And so I was able to meet him when I was in London. And when I see he's getting harassed, I reach out to him and I say, can I be helpful? Mm -hmm. Or if I see, you know, like my friends, you know, starting to tweet things that are like, uh, I'm at the end of my rope, I can't do this anymore. I want to reach out and be like, are you okay? Because somebody who did reach out to me to make sure I was okay was Patrice Cullors, the founder Mm -hmm. of Black Lives Matter, the co-founder. She texted me every single day for a month just to make sure I was okay. And I think that is so beautiful because she, you know, created this, movement, but also is clearly dedicated to be a custodian of people who are in it. Um, and then the other thing I've been a proponent of is realizing that we put ourselves or we're, we're told to put ourselves in difficult situations, yes. whether that's like, you know, falling on the sword of inequality or trying to take things up on our own. And that's not necessary. So like, Yesterday, there was this panel conversation I was a part of, and this gay pastor had asked, you know, what do I do? I'm in a small town, I'm gay, but we had to rally around the Muslim community, and the imam in the Muslim community is homophobic. What do I do? And I was saying, like, it's really up to you whether or not you want to engage, you know? Like, I think that the narratives that we have is that, oh, well, that's your personal problem that you're gay and this person's homophobic. Like if you don't provoke them, it's like basically making it the victim's fault. Right. And so I was saying, you know, really investigate with yourself, okay, what is my goal? I want to help this place. Okay, well does that involve you having to meet with this imam? No. Right. You can write a check, you can raise money. You don't have to put yourself in a violent situation. And he was like no one's ever told me that before and I think that's a lot of us We're told that we have to, you know, take up arms and really like go to war with people either verbally or online or in person. And we don't, we don't have to engage because there are other ways to, to create education. There are other ways to create understanding. And we, especially as marginalized people do not have to do that. So yeah, the mental health conversation, it's been something that I'm like, that it's always kind of been part of who I am, but now I'm like even more adamant about it where it's like the day after there was a mass shooting and I was like, it's okay to be scared because it's scary. Yeah. You know, we don't have to suddenly say, like, we're going to be brave and no one's afraid and they're not going to terrorize us. You know, domestic terror creates fear and that's what it's intentionally supposed to do. We're not at fault because we're scared. We're that's human right. beings. That's and right. We can't, we can't deny ourselves humanity trying to represent something. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that somebody Jones has said. I don't, I don't know if the quotes are to her or not, but she says, you can't light yourself on fire to keep others warm. That's right. And so I try to weave that into a lot of things I do. And so if there's like a crisis going on, you know, I'm not going to immerse myself in it any longer, even though I, in the past I would have. I like, you know, might comment on like how difficult this is or like something's difficult to go through. But a, a really quick example was like the Surviving R. Kelly documentary. That's really triggering for me because I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. I didn't watch it, you know? And I was like, y'all might be expecting me to comment on this because I'm on Twitter, but I'm not going to watch it because it's hard for me. And if you don't want to watch it, you don't have to. There, we don't have to constantly face ourselves with hard situations or put ourselves into violent situations to serve as learning moments. Right. we'll use ourselves up.
1: Yeah, it's that's definitely a huge lesson I've learned myself, you know, over the last, I would say, year and a half around where I will choose to engage and how. And you're absolutely right. There's sort of this expectation of if you don't say something, then you're not really down. You know, if you don't involve yourself, then you're not really about, you know, the work. And it's like, I'm not going to kill myself um, to prove, you know, that uh, these things affect me or that I'm really, you know, in in the work that I'm doing. And I think it's so important for each one of us to individually, intentionally figure out what works for us so that... We're able to do the work in a sustainable way, centering our, our own well-being first, because I'm not, like for me, I'm not going to kill myself, do you know what I mean? Like on, on the way, you know? And yeah. so you had a really, like, thank you for describing the experience you had, because you had a really scary experience. Um, yeah. And it really, it sounds like it really forced you have to be very clear on yourself and what your boundaries are and how you're going to show up and how you do invest in relationships, how you do show up and where you choose to sort of um, self-preserve as well. So I just think, you know, when we talk about mental health, yes, go ahead. What I was going to say is when oftentimes when we have this conversation around self-care and mental health, it's from this, the way it's had in sort of in the public domain is around like you said, like the sort of upper level and not looking at people who are really impacted and what that looks like for marginalized people. So I really appreciate you sharing your experience.
0: Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to say like how this type of thing shows up in social media, because I'd like a quick example, if that's all yeah. right. So like the there's a New Zealand tragedy that happened at mass shooting.
2: Right. And I had Christ not Church. posted yeah. about it
0: Yeah. at Christchurch, New Zealand. And I had not posted about it in my Instagram grid specifically. I had tweeted about it and I had posted it in my story. There was one young woman who I'm now friends with who was like aghast because I had not posted it in my Instagram story because to her that meant I didn't care clearly. and I was laying down Muslims globally. And like it was a juxtaposition for me getting that message being like, you're a fraud. I can't believe you're doing this Like or not doing this. And I was boarding, on a, boarding a plane to go on holiday. So it was very much like, clearly we're in different places. You know, I feel very much like I do care and I have expressed care. Anyway, so I talked to her and I was like, so first, let me show you that I have posted about it. Not that I should have to prove that to you. One, two, I can tell that something else is going on where you feel let down by something else. Maybe you feel let down that the shooting happened and that you're angry at the fact that this happened. I have nothing to do with that, you know, and it was like this poem." point Where we had this conversation about discernment, and I did post about it, but I also talked about the fact that, like, I'm posting about this because there's a young woman who reached out to me who thinks that because I haven't posted about it, I don't care. And I was like, Would you rather me do something actionable that you don't see online, or right. you just pay lip service? And so we had a great conversation, and it turns out that she's being bullied, and she didn't have a space in her school to speak out about this tragedy. And I think that's a lot of what happens online is that people are going through their own shit. Yeah. And they see something that they can put it onto you because it's that saying misery loves company. And it really does. If somebody's miserable and they can make you miserable too, then we're all both miserable together and that's unhealthy, but at least that person's not alone. And so she and I have been able to talk and she's actually a closeted Muslim herself. And, Mm. um, you know, I like her posts on Instagram and stuff and we've gotten this beautiful friendship. She's about 16. And there are so many other young people who I've like, instead of, you know, and it's, I'm totally justified if I block somebody just because they're being an asshole, like that's right. To do that. <laughs> but I found, yeah, I found like a lot of beauty. And if somebody reaches out to me and they're like, I'm 12 and I have an angry thing to say, then I'm like, okay, you're 12. Let me be patient with you versus somebody who's like the same age as me or older. Right. But there is like now kind of this squad I have of people who like came at me in antagonistic ways. And I've been able to talk to them really like just so um, fulfillingly. There's one young man who like posted this diatribe on his Uh, his Instagram story, you know, like when the Instagram story just looks like tiny little M dashes, like it's just really tiny. So he had done that. And he was giving this like oratory about how people are so fake and fraudulent. And he had just gone on for like maybe 15 minutes, but he put it on his Instagram story. And I was like, go off, you know? And he was like, wow, I can't believe you watched this. Like, I know you follow me, but I don't think you actually care. And I think young people... And people, you know, from across all different spectrums, people who are particularly feeling unheard and unseen, they just need somebody to be like, I care what you have to say, even Mm if it came out harmfully in the first iteration.
1: Right. Thank you, Blair. Thank you so much. You've shared so much during this conversation um you're just fa- you're a fascinating person like i could Thank you. <laughs> i could talk to you all day i really can't wait for your next book to come out in 2020 we'll make sure to include the link in the show notes cuz i think people can pre-order it already is that right yes they can yes so we'll make sure that link is there so people can go and buy that book. So as we close up our conversation and you've talked so much about the ancestors who have influenced you and you've talked so much about the, the path that you are walking, I'm really curious to know what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Ooh,
0: I think for me, it's about being a good custodian of the life that you're living. You know, like we're all given these bodies by law, And we have these lies and how are we maximizing our potential? Now, it doesn't mean that like you can't have off days where you're just like the way I'm taking care of myself is by doing nothing, you know, Right. but it means that on a daily basis, we try to do more good than we do harm. Because even if you're like, I I was talking to someone where they're vegan and they're like, you know, zero cruelty, whatever. And I was like, well, you're eating quinoa right now. Did you know that the quinoa trade is really harmful to the indigenous people in South America, especially in places like Peru. And he was like, no and so it's those types of things where we recognize that we're going to do harm because we inhabit the planet you know we might step on a plant between the cracks or we might do something more horrible like lash out at somebody who's a, a waiter because we're having a bad day but every day you do something you have to recognize that your intent to go into the world should be to do more good than you do harm because the thing that scared me the most when i was a young person like middle school, emotional middle school kid, was this idea that I would leave the earth exactly as how I found it. And I think that you don't have to be a massive public figure to make the world a better place. You can leave when you, you know, get hired somewhere, make sure you're leaving that company or starting that company to make sure that you aren't the only black woman any longer and that they are hiring more people and you are bringing things to be addressed in whatever manner is most comfortable for you. And just this idea of like, on top of that, that every day you interact with somebody, you're imprinting onto their life. Yes. And it can be in a positive way or it can be in a negative way. Literally everyone, a cab driver, people who you see in the grocery store, somebody who's struggling with something that they can't reach on the top shelf, you can do a good act just by handing it to them, just by saying hello to somebody, even if you can't give that person a dollar who's, you know, homeless. Saying hello and like saying, I'll pray for you. I hope you're okay. Those things Don't cost anything. You know, it's just sharing in your humanity. But I think after I was arrested and I just started to have this epiphany that we go through this world together. And the more we interact, the more that we try to make each other's lives better, even in these small ways, the more fulfilling it is for us. Because you do feel like your heart is is more whole that way. So I think being a good ancestor is just trying to make sure that the world every day is slightly better because of you.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Blair. Thank you. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Good Ancestor Podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.